I'm convinced from reading the Bible and from reading Christian biography that there's a lot more to the Christian life than most of us have ever experienced. There's just a lot more to it. There's a lot more to be had. Scriptures, of course, themselves teach that. Like Paul, when he prayed for the church in Ephesus, and it's recorded in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 19, one of the things that Paul said is, my desire, I get on my knees and pray that you would be filled with all of the fullness of God. That's quite a... That's quite a uh, statement. I pray that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. And he says at the end of that prayer that you would be strengthened with might by His power in the inner person. It's just, I'm just convinced there's a lot more to be had than, than what we usually have. There's more to be experienced than what we usually experience. There are deeper riches in God than most of us have ever known or or seen. But we we do read about them and sometimes they make us hungry. We read about them in the Bible and sometimes they make us thirsty for more. Or sometimes I think we just read about them in the Bible and we get used to it and we read over them without recognizing what staggering promises that there are in the Bible, the things that could be had for us. And there are no restrictions that would keep us from experiencing them. Now, in the Bible, there are disciplines that are given, and Jesus talked about them. It's interesting that many Christians have not practiced some of the disciplines that Jesus himself said that we would practice. And so maybe the reason that we don't experience all the fullness of God is because we haven't taken advantage of some of the things that Jesus said that he gave us in order to experience all the fullness of God. And fasting is an example of this, because Jesus talks about fasting here in the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to start the message by getting you to think, do you have a deeper, would you like to have a deeper desire for God, a deeper experience in, in, in God? Would you like to have greater power with God, answered prayer, more holiness of life, a sense of intimacy with God? Well, then wouldn't you want to take the things that Jesus said are a part of the Christian life, make them a part of your life, not distort them, but make them a part of your life so that you would experience a deeper experience in God? We, of course, the answer I know is yes. You were nodding. I could see that. The answer, of course, is yes. I know that was a really long answer and a really long question, so it's hard for you to give a really clear answer. But you want to know God more. You want to experience God more than you have. And so this is a discipline that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 6. In the Sermon on the Mount, in verses 16 through 18, and you know this section that we're about to read here is in a section where Jesus has introduced three disciplines, giving and praying and fasting, and they often go together. The giving and the praying and the fasting, especially praying and fasting in the Bible often go together. And so we're we're going to talk about that today. But what we want to do now is we want to give attention to the Word of God in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. So if you have your Bible, open to Matthew 6. 16 through 18, and we're going to read this passage together, and just to show a special honor to the Word of God, let's stand together as we read Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, spoken overlooking Galilee in the Sermon on the Mount. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to be to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret 
will reward you openly. Let's just read that one more time. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Heavenly Father, we uh, pause as a church before you now in this uh, very holy week as we approach the time where we remember your death, your burial, your resurrection, and even your ascension. We think of your return. And so we want to focus our souls and our hearts and our minds on you. We want to know you better. We want to have a deeper intimacy with you. We want to have answered prayers that please you. We want to have victory over our own personal sin. We want to have a holy church, and we know that you do too. And so as we just uh, spend some time this morning thinking about what you said here, I pray that your Holy Spirit would kind of open up reluctant hearts. I, I feel, Lord, like many Christians don't fast and just don't think that's something that they could do or, or something that they have done. And so teach us, as we humble ourselves, as we have gone through this Sermon on the Mount, Lord, it's been very convicting to us. And teach us this morning in this area as we are humble ourselves and we listen and we're eager to learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be seated, please. It's interesting, when you read Christian biography, it's almost like you can't read a really good Christian biography without encountering someone who obviously was, they love the Word of God and who obviously prayed and who obviously was a giver but almost every example of a really good Christian biography is going to include someone who also was disciplined in this area of used this discipline of fasting. You read through the Old Testament and you see it in the Old Testament a lot. Major Bible characters, they fasted. And so you read in Christian biography. I, I brought some examples uh, for you. And uh, I, I want to read just a few examples. Most of us admire the great English Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon's London pastor from a century ago said, Our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle have been high days indeed. Never has heaven's gate stood wider. Never have our hearts been nearer to the central glory. That's what Spurgeon said. Getting near the glory of God is surely the key to burning with inextinguishable light and heat. I'm quoting from a very good book on fasting by John Piper called Hunger for God. Um, he goes on and says, And it is not the need of the hour, every hour, that the blind may see. Is this not the need of the hour that the blind may see and turn from darkness to light and give glory to the Father in heaven? In other words, um, Spurgeon says we never saw the glory of God more than in our seasons of fasting as a church. And isn't that what we need? To see God more. If he is who, who was the light of the world, uh, fought for his fire with fasting, is there something to be learned here for our own flickering wicks? Here's another example uh, from perhaps the other side of the theological aisle in a bit. John Wesley expressed, expressed his own experience in fasting. Here's what he said. Fullness of bread increases not only carelessness and levity of spirit, but also foolish, unholy desires, yea, unclean and vile affections. Even a genteel, regular sensuality is continually sensualizing the soul and sinking it into a level with the beasts that perish, Wesley said. He said, it cannot be expressed 
What an effect a variety and delicacy of food have on the mind as well as the body, making it just right for every pleasure of sense as soon as opportunity shall invite. Therefore, on this ground also, every wise man will refrain his soul and keep it low and will wean it more and more from all those indulgences of inferior appetites, which naturally tend to chain it down to earth and to pollute as well as debase it. Here's another uh, Perpetual reason for fasting, to remove the food of lust and sensuality, to withdraw the incentives of foolish and hurtful desires of vile and vain affections. So said Wesley, and he taught and encouraged and experienced uh, fasting. Um, Also, John Wesley, speaking of the threat of the French invasion, there was a time in 1756 of national uh, mourning and of fasting. And of this, he writes, um, even after biblical times, Wesley tells in his journal of a similar kind of biblical deliverance. The king of Britain called for a day of solemn prayer and fasting, a solemn assembly because of the threatened invasion of the French. Wesley wrote, the fast day was a glorious day. Such as London has scarce seen since the Restoration, every church in the city was more than full, and a solemn seriousness sat on every face. Surely God heareth prayer, and there will yet be a lengthening of our tranquility. And then in a footnote, he added later, humility was turned into national rejoicing, for the threatened invasion by the French was turned away, was avoided. If you read about Jonathan Edwards and his protege, David Brainerd, that you read these, the, Edwards wrote uh, a brief biography of Brainerd and an introduction to Brainerd's diary, which is an amazing thing uh, to read. Brainerd was a young single man who was a missionary uh, to American Indians. Uh, Brainerd was born April 20th, 1718. In Haddam, Connecticut, that year, John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards turned 14. Benjamin Franklin turned 12. George Whitfield, 3. The Great Awakening was just over the horizon. Brainerd would live through both waves of it in the mid-30s and early 40s, then die of tuberculosis in Jonathan Edwards' house at the age of 29. Um, October 9th in 1747, Jonathan held this young man in such high esteem that he took pains to preserve and edit his journals and diary. Here's where we see Brainerd's and Edwards' views of the importance of fasting. For example, in the analogy of Acts 13, where they're praying for uh, leaders, Brainerd sought the guidance of the Lord for his ministry through regular times of fasting. Here's a quote from Brainerd's journalist diary. Uh, Monday, April 19th, I set apart this day for fasting and prayer for God and for his grace, especially to prepare me for the work of the ministry and to give me divine aid and direction in my preparations for that great work and in his own time to send me into his harvest. Accordingly, in the morning, endeavor to plead for the divine presence for the day and not without some life. In the forenoon, I felt power of intercession for precious immortal souls, for the advancement of the kingdom of my dear Lord and Savior in the world. And with all, a most sweet resignation and even consolation and joy in the thoughts of suffering hardships, distresses and even death itself in the promotion of it and had special enlargement in pleading for the enlightening and conversion of the poor heathen. If you read Brainerd's diary, at first it's depressing, in in my personal opinion. At first it's depressing. He never golfs. He doesn't have any Apple software. Uh, He doesn't have a favorite team he roots for. He just prays and he witnesses and he seeks affections in God. Over and over again, it's very introspective. He writes about how he feels in his devotional life. 
If God has given them a sense of freedom or of love or of joy or, or, or of resignation in, in some area of his life, if he's given him um, help as he's tried to witness to others or pray, this is what it's all about. It's all he writes about. And here, in, in this sense, he was talking about, about fasting, about increasing his love for God, his affections for God, his effectiveness for God by setting aside food sometimes. You see it over and over and over again. And I could give you other examples, but what I want to do is I want to go back to what Jesus said now and, 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 and ask and answer some questions. And so we're here talking about when you fast. You may have to reset that because it's not advancing again. And I didn't hit the bad button, so I don't know what's wrong. There we go. The question here is fasting for today is a good question to ask. They fasted in the Old Testament. Uh, they fasted through Christian history, but modern people don't fast that much. We don't talk about it that much. So now why is that? Are we to fast? Jesus said that we would fast after he was taken away. Notice in chapter 6 and verse 16, moreover, when you fast, he's assuming obviously that they would fast. You say it, and of course that's in the corrective passage in verses 16 and 17. That's when he's correcting the way they should have done it. So you could say, yeah, he didn't want them to fast and he didn't want them to fast like that. But later on in verses 17 and 18, he says, and whenever you fast, assuming that we would. So we'll talk about that just a bit, but. But the scriptures here are teaching that Jesus said that, that it would be appropriate to fast, that we would fast after he was taken away. Listen to what Matthew 9, verse 15 says. And Jesus said, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast. What was he talking about? He's talking about himself and his ascension. And the time before his return. So he's talking about the time between his ascension and his return is a time of fasting. That's the church age. That's the New Testament era. Jesus assumed that we would, would fast. Now, I don't think that the Bible, that in the New Testament, the one thing that you notice is that fasting is nowhere commanded in the New Testament. And this is probably where maybe some people step away from it. But I look at it this way. I think this is an appropriate way to look at it. It's like a teacher that is going uh, to give you extra credit for something that they didn't ask you to do. And I actually believe that if you read the New Testament carefully, what you see is that's true about giving. The emphasis in the New Testament isn't about specific amounts that you're supposed to give or specific percentages that you're supposed to give. The New Testament emphasis on giving is not on percentage giving. There's an incremental giving. There's giving as we're prospered by the Lord. The emphasis of the New Testament on giving is on giving out of a heart of uh, a love of delight in the Lord. And so you decide what you give and you decide what kind of um, reward that you want to have. and You decide how much you want to participate in God's kingdom. And that's the idea of the giving in the New Testament. And fasting is similar, although we have commands to give. In the New Testament, there are no commands to tithe, but there's assumption that you will tithe. It's almost like the Lord steps back and he smiles and he, and he puts these examples in the Bible of people who were blessed because they fasted. And he says, I know you're going to want to fast while I'm gone, fast for my return. But he doesn't say, and this is exactly how I want you to do it and when I want you to do it. It's almost like he steps back and he smiles and he says, is anybody here would like extra credit? Is there anybody here that's especially hungry for me? Is there anybody here that was going to do something that I'm not actually commanding them to do, but I'm assuming that they will do? I believe this is exactly what the Scriptures are teaching. And you study the New Testament, you see it services regularly here. Jesus assumes that we will fast. 
Now, the Scriptures are clear here that fasting is voluntary. Sometimes an individual or a couple, as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, or a church will set aside food or, or, or sex or legitimate things in order to seek God without distraction. This is up to each person's conscience before the Lord. Romans 14 talks about that. What you eat, what you don't eat, that's up to your conscience before the Lord. Romans 14 and 3, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let him... Uh, let him who does not eat, not judge him who eats, for God has received him. And then there in verse 6 it says, He who observes the day observes it of the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, and he who gives God, and he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives him thanks. In other words, you might be eating and feasting, and that feasting might be an exhibition of your thanksgiving before God. And you might be doing a very holy thing while you're eating. And so you don't, want, you don't want somebody else to look at you and say, look at they're eating, they're not spiritual. Or you might be not eating, and it might be a very holy thing that you're not eating, and you're concentrating on the Lord, and you're seeking the Lord, you're confessing sin, or you're mourning before the Lord, and you don't want somebody looking at you from the outside, telling you, you know, passing judgment on that. Jesus assumed, though, that we would fast. Fasting is, is setting aside something good and legitimate to focus on God. In particular, Jesus talked about food. It's sometimes setting aside food so that you can focus on the Lord. And now, now don't, don't raise your hand or anything, but I just want to ask you directly, what's your experience been like in fasting? Have you set, ever set aside food in order to just seek the Lord? Have you ever just said, I'm so hungry for God, I so want to know God, I'm so eager to have fellowship with God, that I'm actually going to skip a meal or skip a day's worth of meals, or, 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 or a few weeks of meals, in order just to specially seek the Lord. Because they did that in the Bible. And because Jesus Himself did it. And because New Testament Christians did that. And because Christians throughout Christian history have done that. It might be one of the reasons why our Christian life is often so empty, or so limp, because we haven't chosen to seek God with that kind of hunger and that kind of thirst. Now, again, fasting is setting aside something good, something legitimate. It's good to eat. Food is good, and it's legitimate, and we're supposed to eat. But fasting is setting aside something legitimate. In other words, this is different than setting aside sin. You're supposed to set aside sin. You're commanded to set aside sin. If something's bad for you, in other words, fasting is not setting aside overindulgence for God. Overindulgence is sin. Fasting isn't setting aside gluttony for God. Gluttony is sin. You should set that aside anyway. Fasting is setting aside something that's legitimate or that's good or that you have the right to. First Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5 say, Now the Spirit expressly says, In the latter times some will come, they will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So these demonic false religions, and that's true right now. And they will speak lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And listen to what they're, they're going to do. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who know and believe the truth. So, First Timothy prophetically is saying here, Paul is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in, the, in, in this time that we're living in, the end times that we're living in, there will be people who come along and they will have false religions that are inspired by demons. And one of the things they're going to do is they're going to ask you to do things they're going, to ask you to, they're going to ask you to forbid marriage, and they're going to ask you to forbid eating things that it's legitimate for you to eat. So there's a bad kind of fasting, or there's a bad kind of restriction, if you will. 
Food is a good thing. It's a gift from the Lord. He expects us to eat and to receive it with thanksgiving. But if we voluntarily set aside food, voluntarily, as unto the Lord, in order to seek Him or concentrate on Him, that's an appropriate thing. That's what fasting is. Fasting is a hunger for the fullness of God. And there we're back to Ephesians 3.19 again. To know and love Christ, which passes knowledge, so that you will be filled with the fullness of God. That's what Paul was praying. He's like, I get on my knees and I pray that you would have the fullness of God. Stop. Think. Do you experience the fullness of God? Stop. Think. Your husband, this is your wife. I'm not, you, I'm not encouraging you to be a judgmental husband. I'm just saying, in, in, in your love for your wife, do you think, has my wife experienced the fullness of God? Stop and think. The children that sleep in your home, when they go to bed at night and you're like praying for them, stop and think. Are your children experiencing the fullness of God? That's a great question. Don't you think it is? Is there something in God more than what I've experienced? Is there a deeper experience of God that I can... I, say, I really think so. I'm sure that's true for me. I, I'm, I'm almost sure that's true for, for everyone else here. There's more for us to experience in God than we've experienced. There's a, sweet, there's a sweetness in God that many of us have never tasted. There's a satisfaction in God that many of us don't even realize is there. We, we, we desire other things more than, than we desire God. What's fasting? Fasting is reminding ourselves that God is sweeter than any food that we could eat, more satisfying than any food that we could eat, or, or it's reminding ourselves that we really don't know that yet. Does that make sense? In other words, when I set aside food, and I realize how hard it is to set aside food, and how much I think about food, and how much I delight in food, and how food is a big part of my affections, then I realize how puny my affections for Christ are, and that's a good thing for me. I'll get into that a little bit later on. But fasting, then, is focusing on God. As it says in Psalm 73, you're familiar with this, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God's the strength of my heart. And you read the Psalms, and you see over and over in the Psalms, God, I'm hungry for you. God, I'm thirsting for you. But often modern Christians aren't hungry for God. They're not thirsting for God. They don't miss God. They don't long for God. They don't pine for God. They don't mourn for God. They, 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 they ignore God. And they're perfectly happy with, uh, you know, a bit of Internet surfing or television or, or, or food, uh, lots of food, better food, different places where we get food, you know. And uh, most of the world would thrive on the things that our culture has as appetizers. Fasting is just not been a part of our lives in many cases. In this book, um, Hunger for God, that I mentioned earlier, and I, I strongly recommend, he has a, a part I want to quote to you. It's John Piper again. He wrote this, and I, I found it very, very helpful. And so I quote, Legitimate desires are more likely to be the primary means of distraction in our lives than, than sin sometimes. So, so listen to this. His quote, The greatest enemy against hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but it's the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video as so much as it is the prime time dribble of triviality that we drink in every night. It is the piece of land, the yoke of oxen, the wife, as Jesus said in Luke 14. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but it is his gifts, he says. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when we replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and it's almost incurable. The pleasures of this life and the desires of other things that enter in become the greatest evil. 
though they're not evil in themselves because they force out good things. The, ple- the, the desires of other things entering in, they force out the things that are good from God. And so he goes on and says, these are gifts from God. They are our basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decoration and traveling and investing and TV watching and Internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking. And all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. Now, how do you get away from that? You set, you stop doing some of those things in order to seek God. You might say, I'm not going to exercise this week. I'm going to spend the time I would normally exercise exercising myself toward godliness. Now, probably most of us don't exercise too much, but it's just an example. Or I'm going to set aside this food because I can actually live for a few weeks without food. We traveled out west with the boys, and I'm the kind of person that when I travel, like maybe this is kind of a male thing. When I travel, I like to cover a lot of miles. I like to cover big chunks of mileage. And so I don't like to stop all the time. And especially when I'm traveling with men, it's like, Okay, be a man, you know. We're going to cover 200 miles before we stop. The range of this van is 270 miles. We're not going to stop till we need gas. That's the way it works, you know. And then the guys would say, are we going to eat? And then I would say, yes, but later. And they would say, I'm hungry, but what's hunger? I mean, you know, you had breakfast at 9. Are you really hungry at noon? Seriously, are you hungry or are you just used to eating? You're used to eating, right? So I would say to the guys, and it, they loved me for this. It was very touching. Whenever we bring it up, they always feel very warm about it. I always say to them, a man can go 40 days without eating. Emphasis on man. A man can go 40 days without eating. You don't have to eat at noon. We could go 40 days without eating, you know. And they were like, but we don't want to go 40 days. This is like torture, you know. It's like, you can go 40 days. And then we would, when we did stop, we would stop at nice places and we would have a nice meal and we would get plenty because we weren't really fasting on that trip. We were just for a time. Do you ever hear the voice of the Lord saying, a man could go 40 days without eating? I did, you know. It wasn't a miracle that Jesus went 40 days without eating. It can be done. It's often done in Scripture. It's often done in history. I'm not suggesting that you start a 40-day fast tomorrow, necessarily. Unless the Lord directs you to do it. You have like, you know, your, your wives don't have diabetes or something that's going to kill you 40 days without eating. But I would just suggest that you think about that. Fasting was the regular practice of the early church. That's interesting. You see that in, in Acts chapter 13. Now in the church... Uh, that was in Antioch. And you remember how the church, uh, locus of vitality of the, of the church went from Jerusalem to, uh, to Antioch, Syria. So in Antioch, now the church is exploding. It's a good church. It's a happening church. God is really moving in this church. This is church the way church is supposed to be. It's a great sending church. It's a missionary church, an evangelistic church. And you got these personalities that come out of that church that are godly people like Barnabas and others. And what did they do in this church? Well, one of the things they do is like, this is the means the churches use the preaching of the word and they use prayer, right? They have giving and they have serving and they have fasting in this church. Now, in the church that was in Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manian, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Spirit said, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I've called them. Was that a big deal? That was a big deal. They're commissioning these missionaries, if you will. And how did they do that? They, they fasted and they prayed and they sought the Lord. And the Lord gave them the impression that it was to be Paul and Barnabas. And out they went. It's a big deal. 
verse 3, they then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. Fasting and prayer was a part of that. Acts 14, again, when they had appointed elders in every church, they prayed with fasting and they commended them to the Lord whom they believed. And so they had this fasting and prayer time and commended them to the Lord. Um, Paul said that he would fasted. Now, you could say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and 2 Corinthians chapter 11 are, are a couple of those places where Paul gives a little list of all the things he had to go through that were bad. And you know, part of it was he got beat up and so forth. But he said in fastings often. And you might say, well, those were all enforced fasts. But I doubt if they were. I believe there were times when, when Paul set aside food to seek the Lord. And there were other times when in the course of ministry, you set aside food. Growing up in my, ho- my home, growing up our home, growing up, we never ate a meal on Sunday night ever, 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 ever before church. Never had a meal. You just didn't do that. You went, matter of fact, I'm just telling you the way it's supposed to be, okay? So you can just take a note on this. Um, we went home on Sunday afternoon and we had a late dinner because you have to be done with ministry on Sunday. You know, it's kind of later and you have that late, late dinner. And then we wouldn't have thought of eating before the evening service. My goodness, you, you know, you, you, that wouldn't be appropriate if you listen to the Sunday night preaching without your stomach growling. That's just the way it's supposed to work. And then it was like, that's the way it's supposed to be. And then after that on Sunday night, we would have what my parents called a treat. We're going to go home and have a treat, which really meant we're going to have a full course meal that we kind of graze around and pull out of the refrigerator on Sunday night just before you go to bed. Really a great idea for your health. You know, that's the way it was. Well, in a sense, it's like my parents were devoted to ministry. There was no doubt they were devoted to ministry. They were devoted to the church. They were devoted to that Sunday night service. It was a big deal to them. We were going to be there. It wasn't something that we did every once in a while. I mean, we were just going to be there. And this would be when my dad was, uh, you know, my dad was always a school teacher and usually a pastor. And if there were times between when he was a pastor, it wasn't any different then. We would be there with God's people on Sunday night. And then after we would eat. Well, there's a sense in which you say, you know, people that do the buses here. I mean, what did they eat? You know, they, they got to get here way before anybody else. And they're going to be here way afterward. What are they going to do? They're going to go without food longer than you and I do. The people that are doing the buses aren't going to eat until probably long after you and I have already eaten and we're midpoint of our nap on Sunday afternoon, then the bus people get back into the church. Isn't that the way it is? What are they doing? They are fasting is what they're doing. It's a temporary, it's a short fast, but it's a fast because that's the way fasting ought to be. I'm so eager to serve the Lord and I'm seeking him. I'm setting aside food for now because I'm, you know, I have meat to eat that you don't know anything about. Jesus would say to his disciples, remember that? I have meat to eat that you know not of. King James Version says fasting was the regular practice of the early church. Why do we fast today? Because Jesus said we would do it. And because it was a regular practice of the early church. And Jesus gave us a reference in the Bible, too, that it was especially appropriate for us to fast when Jesus wasn't with us physically. Fasting is appropriate for those who are longing for the return of Christ. Can I ask you this? Do you often long for Jesus to return? Do you often pray that Jesus will return? Did you know that the Bible actually teaches that we're supposed to ask for Jesus to return? Did you know that? Even so, come, last words of the Bible, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, Lord. We pray for his return. In other words, you say, wait a minute, it's prophesied in the Bible, and it's going to happen. Well, there are many things that are clearly prophesied in the Bible that were going to happen, and the means that God used for them to going to happen was praying saints. And so you have that in the Old Testament. You have somebody uh, reading the book of Jeremiah. It's like, oh, the Babylonian captivity is almost over. Lord, end the Babylonian captivity, he prays. And he does. And you get in on that. And we should be praying for the return of Christ. And we should be longing for the return of Christ. 
And we don't think anywhere near enough about the return of Christ. Hey, okay, can I just talk to you men? And I know we got men and we got women and got young people that go out and work. I'm just, it's just like the, let's say you're a man and you're going out and you're trying to earn a living for your family. How do you like it when you come home? Okay, and you worked all day. Maybe you're working overtime so that everybody can have a little something special. And you come home and and you drive in, and the people in the house forgot the ceremony that's supposed to happen when you get there. They totally forgot it. You know, like they're over there doing what they do. They're surfing the internet or they're guarding or whatever, and they're like got their head buried in the closet, and they're like, yeah, hi, you know. But they don't come and exalt you like you're supposed to be exalted. You know, right? Doesn't happen. Yeah. They, it, it, or, or, the way it's supposed to work, and in case you guys didn't get the memo on this, the way it's supposed to work is dad comes home and then everybody's supposed to rush to the door. They're like, Dad, you're home. I know what you ladies are thinking. You're going to let dad stay home for a day and uh, do what I do at home, and then we'll decide who gets uh, the exaltation when he gets home. I'm kidding. You know, I'm kidding about this. But I will tell you this. We may, we may wonder about the worthiness of dad when he goes out and work, and he is worthy. We might wonder about the worthiness of mom as she, she might be working out or might be staying at home and working. But there should be no question about the worthiness of Jesus Christ and our desire to be with him again and see him and for faith to become sight and for sin as we know it to be over with and for God to take control in the, overtly and openly that every eye will say, ah, that'll be a time we look forward to. There ought to be a little bit of a longing in all of us when he's not here yet. There ought to be a little bit of a mourning in all of us that he's not here yet. There ought to be an always not quite right because there's an empty seat at the table. But one day that seat's going to be filled. And that'll, be make, that'll make things right. And so there ought to be times when, since the bridegroom is taken away from us, that we just have lost our appetite and we set aside food. No. This is what, this is, here are a couple of examples. I, I gave you one before. Let me repeat it. Matthew 9, uh, 14 through 17, disciples came to, uh, of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not pass? Jesus said to him, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? In other words, he's saying, It's, it's really feasting time right now because I'm here. But when I go away, then they will mourn. It will be fasting time then. See? The days will come, this is verse 17, the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Now, here's an example of that. Remember um, Anna in the Bible? Remember Anna in the Bible? God revealed to Anna that Jesus was going to be born. And she was in the temple for many years because she was a widow, a godly widow. And she was in the temple for many years. What was she doing there? Not even leaving the temple, but staying there and serving God in what way? She was fasting and praying. And God commended this. He, he, he rewarded this. She, before she died, got to see Jesus. She was, she was longing for Him. She served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So she was the one who knew the club of people that were looking for redemption in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem today, just think about this. How many people are there that are longing for the return of Jesus Christ? Still a little club. Some suggest that there are tens of thousands of, of them who are, and I believe that that is true. But in proportion, you, when you visit, you really can't see too many people who are really longing for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There are some who do. 
Anna would have known this group. She would have known this club, if you will. Those looking for the redemption. And she went to them and she said, he's here. And we want to be that kind of people like Anna, like Simeon, who are praying, who are fasting, who are mourning. Jesus hasn't come back yet, but we know he's going to come back. And things are going to be different when Jesus does come back. Even so come, Lord Jesus. I look forward. There's nothing I'm looking forward to more than looking forward to Jesus coming back. Then 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, finally, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but to those who love his appearing. Are you among those who love his appearing? Revelation 22, 20, I mentioned it before. He who testifies to these things says, surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come Lord Jesus. So there are times we ought to just not eat and we ought to pray that Jesus will come back. Wouldn't that solve a lot of problems? We just ought to pray that Jesus would come back. If you go to Israel, and we just got a chance to do that, Lord willing, next Sunday night, Easter Sunday night, we have baptisms. And Lord willing, if we're able to get our little act together, I think we will. I want to show you some beautiful pictures that we took in Israel and tell you some amazing stories. But one of the things that I noticed in Israel is a prophecy of the Bible that's fulfilled in a shocking way that you can't miss it. When you get off the plane, you just start driving across Israel. You see that the place is there are seven million people that have returned to the land. Millions of Jewish people live in the land. Now you, we're not talking about them all Jewish believers, right? That everything they do isn't right. Everything that they've done isn't right. And, and the, I mean, obviously, because if they're not believing in Jesus, then they're under the wrath of God. But did you know that the Bible says that, that, that Israel would return to the land? Did you know that? And many, 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 many years ago, hundreds of years ago, the Bible says that Israel would return to the land and that there will be a come a time and it will cost them dearly. There will come a time that they will kind of be baptized in blood and many of them will come to really believe in the Messiah. But what I'm saying is if you go to Israel today and you see what's going on, there's an enormous, painful tension. That's one thing you can't miss if you go to Israel. You see it. You see that there is a regathering of Jewish people in the land, and especially since May of 1948, uh, really a miraculous regathering, I believe, in the land. But there will be this regathering and belief in the future. You see that, and you see this great tension, this enormous hatred that that much of the world that lives around them has for them and that they have for the world around them. There is this great tension. What's interesting is that's what the Bible said hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago would be. In other words, if you go to the land today, one of the things that you see very clearly is a very profound, fulfilled prophecy in the land. That should make us hunger and love. By the way, so coming back from Israel, one of the things that has happened to me, and you'll see this, you'll hear this, is that God has touched my heart in a deeper way for a desire to see more of his prophecies fulfilled and for Jesus Christ to return and all that will happen, the explosive things that will happen when Jesus Christ returns, God's people. Who, it's interesting this. When people drift away from the Lord and the, the church goes into apostasy, and we are in a time when the church at large is in a great drift, especially in America, of apostasy. When that happens, people care less and less about the return of Christ. Their theology gets distorted, and their, even their theology doesn't leave that much room for the return of Christ, doesn't emphasize the return of Christ. And that is exactly what's happening in our time. And so we as a church even should have this uniqueness in a way, and that is we are still people that are exalting our soon returning Lord. We are looking forward to Jesus coming back. And we know that he will come back, and we believe that he will rapture the church, and there will be a series of events that happen that are amazing that are actually involving Israel, but that's for another day. 
Now, there are times when fasting, however, becomes sin. And this is what Jesus was saying. As we read the text this morning, Jesus says, when you fast, don't fast so that people will see you. Disfigure your faces. Let me just go through this. When does fasting become sin? Well, when you do it to be seen, and this is the heart of the text that really is what the text is today. Don't fast to be seen or you get no extra credit. You get no credit at all. All the credit that you get is what you got from the people. In other words, it's like this. Jesus says, you've got to decide whose admiration you want. Jesus said, if you want to have the admiration of fickle people who are probably going to turn on you anyway and who are not really that impressed with you, then by all means, make, make sure everybody knows you're fasting and then fickle, shallow, empty people who are not powerful like I am, you will have their momentary admiration. However, if you fast secretly... You wash your hair and you anoint your face. In other words, you take care of your regular grooming so that you're not making a show of the fact that you're fasting and you don't make a public show of your fasting. You do this, I'm in the secret place. Jesus says, I'm in the secret place and I will reward you. So whose reward do you want? Do you want the temporary reward of people who are not powerful and who are fickle? Or do you want the eternal reward of God and the intimacy that you have with God who is in the secret place where you're fasting in secret? Which is, Jesus is saying, decide which of those rewards that you want. So if you fast to be seen by men for this, fickle, for this temporary reward from powerless, fickle people, that's all the reward you get. That's messing up fasting. You might as well not do it. That's what Jesus is saying. When you're wasting your time, or actually it's worse than that, when fast becomes sin is when you do it to be seen, or when you do it to impress, or when you do it while you're oppressing others. In, in Isaiah 58, there's a passage there that often people say this is a passage about fasting. It's really not a passage about fasting. People will often teach with Isaiah 58, and they'll say, look at all the benefits of fasting in Isaiah 58. I'll just challenge you. I was like, if I'm wrong, correct me on this. I don't see the benefits of fasting in Isaiah 58 at all. What do you have in Isaiah 58? You have people who are fasting. They're making a big show of their fasting. At the very same day, God says, they're oppressing the people that work for them. So in other words, to make money, they're, they're taking advantage of people that work for them and oppressing these poor people. And they're hungry and they're, and they're troubled. And the same day they're going, I'm going to church and I'm fasting. At the very same time, they're oppressing other people. And then God says to them through the prophet Isaiah, here's the fast that I want from you. This is the fast I expect. In other words, go back to eating. But stop ripping people off and start being unjust. Stop being unjust. Stop ripping people off. Stop taking advantage of the workers that you're over and treat them right. That's the fast that I want from you. And when you do that, then I will do these things. In other words, it's wasting your time to fast while you're ignoring other commands of God and violating other commands of God. And when you punish yourself to impress God, we won't talk about this for a long time because I, I want to, you know, you're, I don't want you to have to fast today unless you want to. So I'll keep going. But when you punish yourself to impress God, sometimes this is called asceticism or ascetics. The idea of asceticism is just that you have practices. Practices themselves aren't necessarily wrong. But asceticism as a philosophy is when people have denied themselves, or it's almost like a pagan thing, where I hurt myself in order to impress God. If I hurt myself, God will be impressed. No, the Bible doesn't teach asceticism in that sense. The Bible teaches practices, but not practices like this where God is reluctant to help you, but if you punish yourself enough, he'll listen to you. That's not what the Bible teaches. Here's the difference. The difference between asceticism and true Bible fasting is this. Asceticism says, I'm going to punish myself to get God's attention. Or asceticism says, I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to act like physical pleasures are evil. Well, physical pleasures are not in of, of themselves evil at all. They're gifts from God. Fasting is when I say, I'm going to take a legitimate pleasure 
and I'm going to set it aside to seek God. There may be a legitimate pleasure in marriage that a couple sets aside, as the Bible says, in order that they could pray together to seek God. James Dobson and his wife, one day a week for years, fasted for the spiritual vitality of their children. And by the grace of God, their children are walking with the Lord. That's just what they decided. They set aside a, a day of eating, which would be entirely legitimate to eat. And they, wouldn't, they weren't doing it to punish themselves. They are doing it to focus they're on God. And so when, you, when, you just, uh, when you're trying to punish yourself, and we could talk a great deal about that, but we better not. There's another one is when you're only fasting for health reasons. And, and yours truly has this problem. It's like, is this fasting or is this a weight loss method? Uh, is this fasting or is it just know it's better for me? And I've got to tell you, it's a struggle. I'll be honest with you. It's a struggle for me. Sometimes I think, am I fasting and I, and I enjoy kind of the delicious thing that people found out that I am fasting and they think I'm a really great guy because I'm fasting? That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. If that happens to you, you've got to go back and humble yourself. Oh, Lord, forgive me and help me. Just to practice secret disciplines. Am I fasting because I want, you know, I'm fasting, but I'm ignoring other things that God said. We must not fast. Or I'm fasting thinking that God is reluctant to, to give me his good gifts, but if I suffer enough, he will. Well, that's, that's not right. Or if I'm fasting, and it's only for health reasons. And by the way, there are health benefits most of the time for fasting. And, and many of experienced those and can give testimony to that. And that's a side benefit. But if that's what you're doing, then don't you know, call it Bible fasting if you're not seeking uh, God in that. Now, why fast? Let me give you this before we go. I, I like to, I'll look at it this way. Think of these three things. Fasting is concentration. It's experiencing intimacy with God and delighting Him. I'm concentrating on Him. Um, it's, it's a form of worship in when it's like that. It's lamentation, fasting in the Bible often. And these are these three ideas that I kind of listed like this. I, I said them like this because they're, each one of them is a placeholder or an example of a whole bunch of examples in the Bible when people fasted. Sometimes people fasted in order to concentrate on God. God, instead of barbecue potato chips for lunch, it's just going to be me and you. And I'm not going to be distracted by barbecue potato chips or about what it takes to buy the barbecue potatoes or wait in line or the conversations, all that. I'm just, just me and you. I'm going to go take a walk, be in a quiet place, just me and you. I'm going to look you in the eye. I'm going to listen to you. And no barbecue potato chips involved, you know. This is a, can you tell that's a like exact personal example from me? Yeah. I'm sitting in my office one day years ago and I had made up my mind I was going to fast on a particular day. And across the street is a gas station with these really good barbecue potato chips. Wouldn't mind having some right now. And, um, and I'm thinking about that. And so as lunchtime comes, I started thinking about Jones barbecue potato chips. I'm thinking about how crisp they are and how tasty they are. And that maybe a sandwich with those and something to drink. And, and I'm literally thinking about how much I'm going to enjoy my little lunch. I'm going to hike over there. I'm going to get my food. And then all of a sudden it hit me. After thinking about that for like five or ten minutes, it hit me. Oh, wait. I'm going to fast today. And it depressed me. So I'm sitting at my desk now and I'm not happy anymore. I'm like, oh. I was happy when I was thinking I was going to eat barbecue potato chips. But when I was thinking about sitting in my office and just talking with Jesus, I was depressed. You see, does it, does it help you see, oh, something wrong with this picture? Yeah, something real wrong with that picture. So, so fasting is concentration. Fasting is lamentation. It's grieving over sin. Exposing the idolatry of our hearts, just like I'm talking about there. Barbecue potato chips. It doesn't take much idolatry to get me off the rails. Barbecue potato chips. Think about that. That's not good. 
Humility is just realizing I got to have God's help to do the things that he's commanded me to do. I cannot do them alone. And fasting is humbling ourselves before the Lord. And so the lamentation is grief over my sin, grief over others' sin, grief over my family's sin, grief over this church's sin, grief over our nation's sin. Sometimes we fast to concentrate on God. Sometimes we fast to lament sin in our lives or other people's lives. And that's a good thing to do. God, I am grieved with you over what I see in my life. I am grieved with you over what I see in my family. I am grieved with you. Sometimes you ever have a thing in your family where there's bickering or there's argumentation or somebody doesn't treat somebody else right. And you're like, this is not the way it's supposed to be. The kids are turning out too much like me. We're in serious trouble here. Good. Skip a meal. Get on your knees. Grieve over that. Just tell God, I'm so grieved over this. I know you're grieved. I'm grieved. That's a good thing. For you to grieve like he grieves or humility. I'm going to say it another way. It's the same thing another way. Godly fasting then is concentration. It's saying, I want to seek my delight in you alone, God. I'm going to set aside food to seek my delight in you alone. You're better than food. It's lamentation. It's saying I'm grieved over sin. It's humility. Not really humiliation, but it worked with my alliteration there. It's humility. It's saying, I need your help. You see how fasting can be good for us? Do you see that? If fasting is concentrating on God, it's good for us. If fasting is lamenting or grieving over sin, it's good for us. If fasting is humbling ourselves before God and admitting, I need your help, God, it's good for us. So does it make you want to fast? I hope so. My goal, my desire today is that in your own way and in your own life, in a way that you've chosen and the Spirit has stirred you to do it, if you're a believer in, in the Lord Jesus, that you would discover this or, or, or you continue in this. We were walking to a mall yesterday because we'd gone to see my grandbuddies, our grandbuddies. And Lois's mother's uh, birthday and she was ill. And so we went over to visit and this was over in Indiana. So uh, Heidi came down and so it was like a little bit of family time. And uh, like we have these wonderful times and then the girls want to go to the mall. It just doesn't make sense to me, you know. So I'm like, so we're going to the mall because that's what the girls want to do. So we're walking through the mall. And I'm saying to Lois, I'm like, you know what? This is an empty, empty place. You know, look at people here. They're wasting their money on stuff they don't need. They're buying food they don't need. They're, they're getting stuff. They're just look at this place. You know, you had pictures over here. They're bad. This is a bad place. Without any judgmental attitude at all, Lois just kind of smiles. And she nods over toward the Apple store. And she goes, yeah, almost every place. I'm like, well, that's true. There are a couple of stores in the mall that don't bother me at all. The bookstore never bothered me. The Apple store had this strange attraction to that, you know. It's like, ooh, peripherals and goodies and gizzles. I'm as bad as anybody else here. My appetite is just better, you know. I just like better stuff. And those other people, the low-life people that like clothes and stuff, you know. That, they're just like, you see, the point of it is, our world is full of things, and Satan knows our appetite. He's like, here, squander your life on this. Of course, you know, with me, I use those, I use those implements for God's work. You know, so it's okay. <laughs> you know, I'm kidding, right? In other words, we all struggle with empty appetites, and we all need to calibrate our souls back. So weakness in fasting. So let me just tell you this one thing. I want to tell you, it's a big deal to me, so let me tell you this. Um, my personal experience has been, uh, frustrating sometimes. I want to fast, 
And then I find, like, my potato chip story. Like, I find out, wow, you know, I'm not like a great man of God. Somebody says, you know, I go to a conference and somebody says, if you fast, and these are the things, and you'll have insights from God's Word, and, and you know, you'll preach, you'll be like Billy Graham, millions will be saved. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to fast, you know. And so I fast, and I just feel grouchy. And I'm, that's what happens to me. Millions aren't saved. I just feel grouchy. I go home, the kids are like, you're not eating, are you? Like, how'd you know? They're like, they're like, go, dad's home, look out, you know? He's fasting, so stay out of his way, it's gonna be bad, you know? It's like, somehow I don't think that's what the Bible was talking about, that your family has to run and hide, because you got the low blood sugar thing going on, right? Now, so what should I do? Should I say, well, since that's been in my experience, do I just give up and quit? No. No, because, First grade is, you know, elementary school teachers, stay with me on this. Is first grade education? Yes, it is. It ain't grad school, but it's education. And nobody gets to grad school without first grade. Am I right? So in other words, if you fast and you find yourself depressed because you'd rather eat barbecue potato chips than spend an hour with the Lord, you're starting to learn about yourself. It's good. You, you, now, you know something about yourself, don't you? You're like, I'm about the same level as a pastor. I'm right in there with the barbecue potato chips thing. You know, I'm not the, you know, millions are being saved yet. I'm on the barbecue potato chip. I'm in kindergarten. I'm in preschool and preschool and fasting. In other words, let me read this to you. Weakness and fasting shows us that we are easily distracted from God. Weakness and fasting shows us that we're not grieved as we should be grieved about the sin that's around us. So we lament we should be more grieved than we are. See that? These correspond with my three points. Did you see that? Weakness in fasting shows us these things. That we're easily distracted from God. Shows us that we're not grieved as we should be. And finally, it shows us that we are in bondage to pride, thinking that we can accomplish the things that we're supposed to accomplish without the help of God or other people. And that's pride. Even if you're not arrogant, you might be proud, thinking, I don't need to pray in order to accomplish God's work. I don't need to fast and pray to see that my kids walk with the Lord. I don't need to fast and pray to build a great gospel preaching church. I can just do that with my own personal charm. I can just do that with my own hard work. I can do that with my own skills or efforts or my recruiting ability. That's pride. That's bad. Nobody can do anything God wants them to do with that itself. And so today, I hope that's been helpful to you as I, as I come to the end of this message. And I know you thought I never would. Uh, I think of that old hymn I love to sing a lot, and we've sung it a lot, and maybe it would be a good way for us to express ourselves to the Lord, just to tell the Lord, Lord, I need you. I need you every hour. It's 565. I need thee every hour. Let's just close our service by singing, I need thee every hour from our hearts, and let's stand together.